Welcome to the Glory Podcast. We're so glad that you're listening. Our mission is to declare God's glory. Please visit glorychurchkc.com to hear all of our other messages. Well, Glory Church, you guys can have a seat. I invite you, if you are, if you worshiped maybe in the back, uh, come on in, uh, join us up here. It is so good to have you. If you are new here at Glory Church, my name is Greg McKinney. My wife and I actually are the lead pastors here. Um, but for those of you who have been for the past few weeks and you're like, who is this guy? Um, I actually have been out for six weeks. I've been floating some of the weeks in the back. Um, but I took for the first time in, what, 10 years of being a parent, I took a paternity leave. Um, yeah, we have a beautiful five-week-old. Woo, she's gorgeous. She's in the back. Um, beautiful five-week-old. And I, for the first time ever, and this is not a, this is not a, wow, good job, Pastor. This is a sort of a shame on you, Pastor, for doing that to your wife every other time, right? You should have taken that paternity leave. Um, but I am just excited to be back. Uh, we are in a series Uh, over the book of Ephesians. And if you have never opened up that book, it is okay. Sit with us in this. I was able to to start off the series at the first half of chapter one, if you could remember that, like six weeks ago. And then we've had some amazing people from our church step in. And it was just, I mean, when I could tell you that I, without um, any type of chaos in my mind, without any fear, I just handed over the reins to these men, and they, they killed it. They did so good. And so if you missed any part of that, um, the first three or four are on the website and the podcast. The other ones, I'll get them up soon, okay? You, you can find them, though, on our Facebook page. Uh, and, and we are in Already Prepare Yourself, Chapter 5, um, which is sort of a, a little joke in our staff that... I get the chapter that shifts from theology to very like bold and blunt practical, like Paul is, is just hitting people. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, God help me with this. Uh, but over the past few weeks, we've had some amazing men preach and teach. Uh, we had Mike lead in chapter four, start us off in it. And then it led into Brian last week. If you were with us, he, he did this nice transition from unity, what Mike talked about, the boldness, the beauty of the body of Christ. And then Paul starts saying, okay, from death to life, you came. So now in life, you got to live alive. And then chapter five happens. And so I'm going to set the scene for you. Uh, If you'll be with me, I I really want to, if we're going to understand what Paul's going to do, because he is getting very personal to the Ephesians, to to the church at Ephesus in chapter 5. He's getting very personal. And so we're going to need to sort of understand them and flesh them out a little bit if we're going to be able to sit with them in this text, okay? Because foremost, it's not for you first. It was for the church of Ephesus. So like they received this text and it spoke to them first. And now we get the opportunity to be changed by it. But I'll let you know, Brian, uh, he, he started out last week in a very beautiful way, sort of painting the picture and getting you ready for it. And so I'm just sort of going to, he set the ball up and I'm going to try to hit it. Okay, we're going to try to hit it. I'm not very good at baseball, but I will try to hit and, and hit it well. Uh, though hundreds of years ago, Ephesus uh, is not that different, though it's vastly strange. It was very different uh, in some ways, but not that different in others. You see, uh, Brian alluded to this, but at the center of 
the church of Ephesus or the city of, uh, of Ephesus was this temple. And it wasn't in the center of the city. It was right, actually right outside of Ephesus. And it was the, the temple of Artemis or of Diana. And in fact, in the center of the temple, I'll just go ahead and you can do a little visual. In the center of the temple was this nice little statue, this shrine. Now, I just want to let you know, because we've got to understand these people. The temple of Artemis, it was located just outside of the city but it was the foundation of this city. Um, it became rather quickly the bank. Now, let me tell you this. Uh, in, our, in our city, in our culture, we got banks that store our money, but the Temple of Artemis began to be uh, one of the wealthiest places. In fact, uh, a little history buffs in the room, one of the, it's one of the seven uh, like famous, are you ready? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is the temple in Ephesus of Artemis. Diana is another name for it. And so here it is, and, and it rather quickly, uh, Ephesus became the melting pot of everyone. People would travel in, and you would want to keep your money in this temple. And I'll tell you why. Artemis promised whatever you gave her to lord over, she would bless it tenfold. Like whatever you gave her to lord over, uh, she would not only keep it safe, but she would allow your outside life to prosper. And so people would be traveling uh, from far and wide to come to Ephesus to put their money in the temple of Artemis. It was messy, as you can see, but it continues. Um, now hear me when I say this, like I'm not the kind of pastor that thinks there is a demon under every rock, okay? I'm not. But when it comes to this temple, you're about to hear of some crazy things. I mean, when it comes to this temple, we've got this shrine to a false god. We're about to talk about some cultish practices that they did. You could learn witchcraft and how to curse your neighbor here. Uh, you could engage in some sexual immorality, some sacrifices, orgies, some chants of allegiance. I mean, all of that sounds pretty demonic to me, right? Yeah. So we can like, I don't want to say there's a demon under every rock, but I think there was a demon in this rock, okay? Like there, there was something being praised and it was not our Lord. And the sad reality is, um, is that it wasn't just the crazy people that went into the temple of Artemis. It was literally everyone. It was the cultural norm to go into this place, to keep your finances there, to go there if you were needy. And we could say the spirit of Artemis captured the heart of the wanting soul. Quite literally, what I love about the, the Ephesians is they were well aware that they were needy people. Um, they were. The sad part was that their neediness went straight to Artemis. And so quite literally, like she is the goddess in Greek culture. She's the goddess of, uh, the, she's a virgin goddess. She's known as being a hunter in many ways. But in Ephesus, she was the goddess of fertility, of pleasure, of love, of long life. And inside this temple was a statue of her. Now, it's interesting. Um, historians are sort of... Uh, they're against each other on what is surrounding her chest area. Uh, some think it's like a sack of bees, like bees' eggs. And so uh, just this idea that, that, that Artemis, she can pollinate all of life. Other people think it's a woman's breasts and multiple of them because our Artemis was known to nurse the wounds of all. And so you would come to her if you were needy and she would fill you. Uh, others think it's actually bull testicles. So the pastor just said that on stage. 
uh, that quite literally, if you were lacking, if you were in need, she had the seed of power. She had what you needed to get what you wanted. And this is this mess that they genuinely believed it. And so uh, if, you, if you had a need, she nursed your wounds. She gave you the source of power and Artemis preys on the needy heart. So we're going to flesh this out a little bit. Many of you know someone, um, so she's a fertility god. Many of you know someone who are, are or have been in the throes of trying to get pregnant and how vulnerable, how achy that is, how the lie of what is wrong with me comes up. Artemis has a fix for it. In fact, it was so messy that uh, the Greeks literally believed if you did the act of sexuality in front of the shrine, that it would restart the fertility cycle. And so the young woman who couldn't get pregnant would be enticed into homosexual relations with the priestesses in front of the shrine to try to get her fertility cycle to, to, to come back to life. The man, if you, if you want to know why Paul is very bold to Timothy, who would later pastor the church in Ephesus, and he uses a word like, do not, women are to never exercise authority over. That word is this demeaning word. It's, a, it's an erotic word. And the word is because a man, if he couldn't, uh, give his seed to his wife, he would come and the priestesses would, like a domineering, uh, take control of him to teach his body to submit to the woman's body. And so it's literally messy. And it just kept going. So this is what, and then what would happen? Let's say they get pregnant. And sometimes it could be get, getting pregnant because of that, or they would add another men to it. Uh, you would get pregnant. And then what would you do? You would praise Artemis and in would come more of your money. And it was this nasty cycle, but it continues. To the soul that felt lonely or wanting, Artemis promised a mate. Whether you just wanted satisfaction, there was temple prostitutes. Whether you just uh, wanted that, that fixed, they had it. But then this, this is really interesting. Ephesus held annual festivals where you could come and people came from far and wide to come. And it, was, it could be a days to a week long and you could cycle around and find your mate. And so there was dancing, there was chanting, there was, there was, I mean, all the things you can think of, drinking. And at the end of this, if you found someone that you connected well with, you could be called fiance. And then shortly after, wedding bells would be rung. And so in this city were dozens of people who found their quote-unquote soulmate under the love and leadership of Artemis. And so guess what? In goes their money. And they were tied. My family was built on this temple. I have allegiance to this temple. I found my wife because of this place. Artemis gets my all. To the one who felt lacking in work and wealth, Artemis promised you riches along life. This is hard. To the heart that felt neglected, that felt like no one valued them, uh, Artemis could, and the priestesses could teach you how to put curses and how to use items to get your way, get what you want. In fact, as I was researching it, it, it was like the first uh, rape drug. Uh, they would teach you how to manipulate people to get what you wanted sexually. It's this mess of a culture. This was the hardest to the woman who was hurt. Artemis, the spirit of Artemis. Uh, if, if you know anything about Greek culture, they can elevate the body and strength of a woman and like emasculate men. That's what was happening. So Artemis would teach you how to slander well. 
how to speak curses if a man hurts you. And so the church of Ephesus, this is why Paul's like, permit women to not speak. There, there's a lot going on. Women have dominated over. They've been, there's quick to slander. This is why Paul uh, has just spoken over and over. Don't be angry. There's a lot going on in this culture. And then we see an Acts. Okay, so I fleshed it out. We see an Acts. Paul, go to Ephesus. And you see in 1919, uh, not the year, the chapter 19, verse 19, Paul shares the gospel and a whole group of magicians give their life to the Lord and they publicly burn their spell books. And then it says people begin confessing and divulging their sins. And it, literally what it's saying is at, in one moment, revival broke out in Ephesus. People were leaving the temple of Artemis and said, now what? In Ephesus... Triumph was happening, and so Paul takes this couple who'd been with him for a while, Priscilla and Aquila, and he says, I need you to live here, and I need you to host a church in your home. This couple is like the church planting uh, couple of like the New Testament. They, this is their third church. This is their third city. And so they, they're taking care of it. And so now, this church in Ephesus, you could find couple after couple who met within the sexual immorality of Artemis, who met Jesus, and now they're in Priscilla and Aquila's living room trying to figure out how do we do this right. In, in this church of Ephesus, you have people, whether they're dating or they're already married, and they're like, we started it wrong, we want to do right. In this church, you had, had families who thought they were blessed by Artemis, but are now bringing their children to play in, in Priscilla and Aquila's home, who are now like, I want to train my children to trust in the Lord. And they want to do it right. In Ephesus, you see this beautiful piece of the one who was abused and the one who was calloused from abuse, all coming and saying, now what? I want to learn from the King of Kings. You see the men and the women who were sexually satisfied for years and it was cultural norm. And now they're in Priscilla and Aquila's home and they're like, I want to know who is the Lord of hosts. And so Paul writes to them. It's beautiful. And we can say Ephesus was a wreck. <laughs> we could. But we literally, if you want to own this, the spirit of Artemis, that demonic nature that says uh, it will nurse our wounds and feed our flesh, is pervasive in our culture. Like, I'm going to bring us now into Ephesus together. Are you ready? Sure, there's no um, temple right outside of our city uh, where we could get our fix. But I think every single one of us have a phone inside of our pocket that can get your fix. Right? In our culture, uh, there's not this temple that holds all the finances, but there is an industry that is business savvy and the most wealthiest in the world, the sex industry, the porn industry. And the spirit of Artemis, though it may not be a temple outside of our city, it is a foundation of the broken world. Still, come, all who are hungry, and Artemis will nurse your wounds. She will give you your wondering heart an answer, a satisfaction. If you're, if you're aching, we got apps for that, right? And I'm not talking about the Christian ones. Some of you met on that. I'm talking about the ones you have an itch, it will scratch. Like if you have a need, we got it. If you, if you are hungry for this, there's an app for that. There's a website for this. And it's pervasive in our culture. And now, it might be not a temple, but the spirit still gets worshiped in our world. And what I love about our church, are you ready? What I love about our church 
is there are couples who would be bold to say, I began, we began in sexual immorality, but we are here because we want to know the God of all gods. And we, we, some of you are dating, some of you are engaged, some of you are married, and you're like, we were that way, now we're this way. There are individuals who have been um, stuck in the cycle in their past of Artemis' Artemis's lure of be fulfilled, be fulfilled, and that was your past. And you've traveled down to that temple many times, but you're here. And you're like, I know the God who satisfied me like no one else I want in. I want to learn. I, this is my life. There are those of you who uh, have, have traveled and have tried to be sustained by drugs and alcohol, but you're here. And you're like, the Lord has shifted me, shaped me. He is the nectar of my life. There's some of you who have sadly done the abusing. Some of you who've been abused under the same demeaning spirit that said that you had to, or this was the only way, but now you're here. And I'm thankful for that. And so all of us, Paul's about to speak to. Are you excited for that? Every single one of us, we are more like Ephesus than you thought originally. Glory Church is a lot like Ephesus. And that's a good thing. Because you're eager, hungry. And so Paul writes this. Now, when I, when I get into this, it'll be a little bit unlike the last few times that I've taught or even the, the way that we've done this. I'm not going to read the whole text and then start again at the beginning. I'm actually going to keep it open the whole time. All right? And we're literally going to travel verse by verse all the way through this because this is Paul's letter to you, to Ephesus, to those who are saying, now what? What now? I have all of this in my back, my baggage. I have all of this in my past, but now what? And maybe it wasn't sexual. Maybe it was, it was just a wayward, wanton heart. And I got my way in the world, but now I need him. He has a word for you. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. And I just want you to know, like, when it says therefore, uh, my, my Baptist pastor growing up would always say, whatever it says therefore. And he has this deep, abiding voice. And you're just like, man, I wish I could speak like you, Brother Ronnie. He just has this voice, you know. But he says, whenever you read therefore, you must seek to know what it's there for. All right? So what Paul just said was, hey, you have been forgiven. What Paul just said was, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. What Paul just said is, is, is Christ's forgiveness reigns supreme. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you want to highlight the word imitator, do it. This is one of two personifying words that Paul is going to give to the, the church of Ephesus, okay? One of two. This is the first one. I need you to be an imitator of God, Paul says. That word is mimetis. It's like a mime. It means to follow, to imitate, to mimic. I need you to follow God. This word is always used in the New Testament as to be a disciple, to follow him. Now, this is important because in their culture, you did not imitate the gods. You sought to get the attention to the gods. In Greek culture, you did not seek to imitate gods. You needed, they were their own thing. You had to get their attention. 
And so that is why if you were needy, the louder you could be. If you were aching, the, the, the more sexual you could be in front of Artemis to get her attention. If you were, if you were aching, the more money you gave because you must get the attention of the gods. But the Father Almighty is like, you have my heart. Imitate me. Imitate me. Be like me. It's beautiful. Now, this is important. This is a little side. To imitate is to re- replicate, not to replace. Okay? Just so you know. Imitate is to replicate, not to replace something. Now, I say this because we all have a lure in our flesh. Uh, many of you have experienced this uh, when you're trying to tackle debt, and then you tackle debt, and now you have a lot of money, and what do you do? You dig yourself more into debt right? Because we have some problem in our flesh that when we get stable, we start spinning on our own. And when we start spinning on our own, we start spinning out of control, right? Anyone else? When you start getting stable, you start spinning. And you're like, I can do this. This is my job. This is my money. This is my finances. This is my relationship. I could, and then it starts going a little way haywire. It's because imitating is replicating the, the the goodness of God, not trying to replace it. You're not trying to literally become God, right? That's the lure that, that uh, Eve had in the garden. You still need him. We are not called to just go fly. We're called to soar on wings like eagles that are literally being carried by the pneuma, the wind, the spirit. Where he leads, I follow So that's a little cool, important piece. All right, imitate God, Paul says. And what he continues, though, the first thing, this whole chapter is about how. How do we do it now? He says, I need you to walk in love. I need you to walk in love. I need you to literally live in love. Now, this is really important. Paul knows the culture of Ephesus. This is the same culture that the book of Revelation would later write to. And guess what? They would, guess what Jesus would say? This is my one wrong for you. You've left your first love. Do you know why? Because Ephesus, cultural norm was love is physical. Love is transactional. Cultural norm, love is dependent on what I provide. Love is the response that I get when I am fill in the blank. Love is, and, and instantly, if God is not in that definition piece, anything else will be, and your heart will start chasing after it, Right? But God is love. And and so he's like, walk in love. I know this. I know that you're going to be struggling, Ephesus, because you you struggle to define it by your satisfaction. You you define love by your fears or by what you think you're lacking in. Love is quick to be transactional. You think it's granted by what you give. No, love is found in the Lord. Imitate him and walk in it. And then it continues. He says in verse 3, but sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now, let me tell you, Paul is not blind of who makes up this church. In fact, I would say, God, I, as the pastor, I am not blind of who makes up this church. Paul knows them. Uh, God knows us. And he says, if love is to be our walk, if imitating Christ is to be the goal, then sexual morality, impurity, covetousness cannot be present. Now, 
This word sexual morality, I'm just going to break it down for you. Uh, it's the word porneia, um, which if you want to put that up for them, it looks like porn. But it actually means a sexual sin of a general kind. Some of your translations say fornication. That's a fun word. No one uses that. Sexual sin of a general kind is what this word means. And it's interesting because even in the, the actual definition of it, it, it's even less or more vague. It's even less specific. The definition says an act that includes many different behaviors. And you're like, what? And I think it's this, because often we like to lump sexual morality into a category that we think we can control. We really do. Um, because now you're married and you think sexual morality was like before marriage. And so now it's not something you deal with. Some of you, you've once dove into pornography, but now you're not there. And so sexual morality is not what you deal with. Others of you, you're like dating, but you're not crossing boundaries. So sexual morality is not what you deal with. But Paul's like, let nothing sexual of a general kind be in your life. But now we have to be behind Christ. Let him be the lead. Imitate him. In fact, at the end of the day, this is just a little fun, little aside. Uh, sexuality in its most basic thing, is how we connect with others. It really is. Your sexuality is how you connect with every single person. Now, the reason you don't like that is because flesh has, the flesh sin has twisted that concept, and so now you're making it twisted in your definition. Sexuality is how you connect with the person beside you. Correct, like real. And in the counseling realm, if I can be a counselor for you, in, this, in the counseling realm, um, if someone, and I'll put myself in here too, if we have encountered broken sexuality in our past, the fruit of that will always be seen in our inability to connect with people. In fact, I have grown as a pastor, this is something you can teach if you're going to mentor people. I, we can grow to be aware of sexual sins, broken sins, simply because you can see there's a connection problem with them and someone else now. It is deeper than just, she hurt my feelings. It's deeper than just, I'm busy now. It's that there is a sin problem and it has now broken the, and severed a connection with other people. Sexuality, this is why like in a counseling, if someone is struggling with pornography, I, it is a telltale sign that they then struggle with conversations with the opposite sex and their own sex, their own gender. It, it's, a, it's a thing. So now, but no shame in that. Do you know why? Because I have a God that said, uh, I came so that I could reconcile man to me and man to each other. And so, noticing it is okay. Do not let the enemy right now vent you with shame, spindle you down, say, that's why I can't get any friends. No, no, that's a lie from the enemy because you have a God who re redeems, reconciles, okay? So I'm gonna keep going though. Paul knew his church well. He knew that sexuality in uh, the Ephesians couples may no longer involve, and I need you to hear this, it may no longer involve the shrine of Artemis anymore. It may not, but now sexuality and sexual immorality now involves a husband's inability to trust his wife fully. 
a wife's inability to fully be intimate with her husband. Now, sexual immorality is uh, uh, what is going on in the individuals blocking their ability to truly trust another person. Because it's no longer that act anymore, it's the lies that that act has fed to the soul who's now not doing them, but still believing them. Does this make sense? Sexual immorality is so much more because now Paul knows uh, I got individuals in my church who I love who are no longer going, uh, they're no longer going to Artemis or the temple prostitutes or they're no longer going to their phone, but they are still struggling to connect with the body because they have a deep abiding fear, shame, lie, feeling that they don't belong. And so sexual immorality, though the act is not present, its lies, its voice still are. Sexual morality must not even be named among you. This word named, if I can just explain this. Um, do you remember when it, it really means it should not belong? It should not belong. It has no place. Do you remember when we were kids and uh, we found that stray animal or the little lizard? Anyone else? Uh, and how many lizards have you killed? Like, I've killed so many. Like, they're just not supposed to be pets. Um, but as a kid, we think they are. Little turtle, anyone? I've killed my fair share of turtles, too. Yep. Uh, dogs? Anyone killed dogs? I, I've accidentally slammed a dog's head in the door. Um, don't, it was bad. It was not... Now you're with me. Okay. What's the number one thing a parent who does not... Be with me. You ready? What's the number one thing a parent who does not want that animal in their house says to the child? Do not name it. Right? I don't want you to name it. Because what happens when a kid names a lizard? They love it. They fall in love with it. They've now turned the, the Amazon box into its home. And they've now plucked all of the grass from the backyard and they've put it in there and they're planning the lizard's meals. See, I gotta tell you, Paul is saying, let there be nothing in your life that's named. And in fact, there's some unnaming that we must do to some of the sins of our past. And what I mean by this is you've given it a name and it makes sense because it was a part of your life. But the sad reality is you still feed the lies daily without even meaning to. And so sexual morality, though it's not acted upon is still present because you feed the lie that it gave you. Some of you, the lie is as simple as like, I will never be whole. Some of you, it is, uh, I, there's those kind of relationships that are good. Mine will never be there. That is a sexual immorality lie. Some of it is my, uh, like I, I am impure. I am not clean. Others of you, you think that you have to, a man looks like this and a woman looks like this and I have to be strong. Some of you, honestly, the lie I have to be strong is a sexual morality lie. It really is. There's a broken connection somewhere and that dives deep. And so now, how are you reacting and interacting with the opposite sex in your strength? Probably some broken connections. So Paul's like, let this not be there. And so I'm just going to like, Father, in this place, I'm going to pause and just pray. There are things that have been given names in their past, but have, have quickened uh, their timidity now. Because though the action isn't happening, that thing is still buried deep. 
in the back recesses of their mind. So Father, right now, I just pray that your blood, Jesus, would wash over the name, that it would be a forgotten name, that it would not be named among them as it's proper with the saints, because we do not have any other name taking claim in our life except the name of Jesus. So right now, loosen ties to this name so that we can hear your word as we continue. In your name, Jesus, amen. So Paul says to help, let there be no filthiness, right? Verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And you're like, okay, Paul, why are you just hitting us? Because honestly, a good way to kick it out of your house is um, stop finding humor in the impurities of your past. Literally. Paul's like, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Why? Because Ephesus, you're not in Artemis anymore, but you're still joking about the prostitution that's happening. You're still taking this delight in some of the things. In fact, like, honestly, I, I, I realized this in my life that I found I wasn't doing those actions and this is key. Are you ready? I wasn't doing those actions, but the desensitized heart that I had, the desensitized heart that I had, let things remain in my mind. And because they remained in my mind, I took humor in them. I, I, I thought it was funny when. So practically, and I mean this, and I, I mean this, I'm going to say this in my dad's voice. Are you ready? Stop laughing when someone gets drunk and makes a fool of themselves. Stop finding it funny when the world acts broken. Stop. Stop. It only echoes the lie that you have in your heart that that is true delight. Because then you know what happens? My, I have fun. But some of you think, how, pastor has fun? Yes, it's because your definition of fun is so sinful, right? Literally in that. I am a fun man. I got a lot of fun. I have fun all the time. Just because it's not defined in the way the world is actually a good thing. We have to stop taking humor. I got another one. Stop delighting in movies that idolize the satisfaction of a one-night stand. Stop. Stop idolizing movies that, that just fantasize, that romanticize over the, the one-night stand or a relationship that began that way. No, there's nothing, I get it, the Lord redeems, but we cannot find humor in the sin anymore. Paul says, imitate God. Watch your mind. Get that thing out of your house. Guard it. You another one? Are you ready? Stop opening your heart and enjoying the power struggle on TV, on movies, between the demonic there's no power struggle in the demonic. We know a God that says silence and they fall. So stop, stop being encouraged or delighted by the demons in a movie who spread fear. No, because my God's silence is all fear. So I will not take delight in Artemis anymore. I won't. I will not take delight in her. Another one, uh, stop longing for the embrace and intimacy that's filmed on shows like Bridgerton. Let's be honest. That's not sexuality. That's not, that's not the beauty of intimacy with a spouse. It isn't. So guard what you find delight in. 
In fact, we keep in our home what we delight in. We do. We keep in our home what we delight in. But all sexual immorality, all impurity, all covetousness, covetousness is that, that greed that wants you to take advantage of something. It's that deep greed. It must not even be named in you. It must have no place in you. So how then do I get rid of it? Because it feels like it's a lot. It's a lot. He will, he will continue. He will continue. But he's about to get a little bit like, here's you, here's not you. Are you ready? Because he continues in very blunt. Verse 5. You, Ephesus, may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. So I'm going to pause right here to protect every mind. Paul has done a nice little wordplay here. He has taken the Greek word for fornication, and he's now personified it. It was a root word, and let no sexual morality be in your midst. He has now personified it, and now it's the one who practices sexual immorality. It was, don't let any immorality be in your midst, but now it's the one who is immoral. The word is shifted, and it's personified. It how has an identity attached to it. It's no longer the one who covets, or it's no longer the covetous action, but now it's the one who is greedy. And the reason I say this is Paul is making it very clear. Ephesus, you don't let any of this in because I need you to know the people who believe it to be normal, whose identities are wrapped in it, are, are defined in it, they will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And what I need you to see in this is because they believe they have all inheritance because they have put it into Artemis's hand. But you have all inheritance. The riches of all of heaven are at your disposal. So let you be sure of this. The people who are practicing it and who look happy, they have no inheritance. The people who are coveting and gaining and, 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 and climbing that ladder, honestly, some of you are not successful, as successful as you want. All right, let's be honest. And you find in your workplace, the ones who are successful are the greedy ones. And the lie in the back of your head, if I just like strove, if I strived a little bit harder, I could. God's like the covetous. They seem like they have an inheritance. No inheritance. You have all riches in heaven. And so he says that. And he continues, let no one even deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. The sons who, that word, reject belief. And so he's like, They're, the sons who, of disobedience are all in our culture. And they will try to teach you the ways of, of, of good. They will try to teach you the ways of success. They will try to teach you the ways of satisfaction. Uh, but he says, do not even let them speak. Don't deceive you. Don't be deceived with empty words. If you want to write this down, that, that word empty word is really interesting. Uh, it, it means uh, any word that, that has a look of good, but it has no return. It, an empty word, the spirit of Artemis is all about it, right? Words that sound promising, but literally provide nothing. Words that end up making you dependent on something other than Jesus, that you have to go back to it. Like, I, I remember all the times when I thought I had to be another way. But then you get there and you're like, shoot, I'm still not good enough. So what do you have to do? Keep being another way. 
Literally, the, the future pursuers in the room who always think, I have to, I mean, all I look up forward to right now, it was what? Graduating high school. And then you got there, and now you're like, I'm still not enough. I've got to graduate college. And then you, you got the, now I've got to get married. And you always have something else. The empty word says, get it, and you'll get it. But you know it's empty because you get it, and you still feel like you need it, right? You still feel like there's more, and you're broken, it's, it's thoughts, it's words, it's things that were good, but they only made you thirstier. Jesus doesn't make you thirstier. He makes you satisfied. He, he makes you satisfied. Artemis will teach you to be thirsty and will quench that thirst as much as you come to her saying, I'm thirsty, but you'll always have to come back because she teaches you to be thirsty. Jesus satisfies. And I believe this, like, Paul's very strategic because then he goes right from this, uh, this rejection of belief. Then he says, what, verse 7, do not even become partners with them. This word partner. In fact, if you want to underline that or write that down, do it. I told you at the very beginning that there's two um, defining words that Paul gives to the church at Ephesus, very personifying words. First one, be an imitator of God. This is the second thing, where he says, do not be partners with the world. And I think he's very strategic in this. In fact, I think he knows those things are actually in opposition to one another. If I'm going to imitate the Lord, I cannot partner with the world. But if I partner with the world, I cannot imitate the Lord. And you're like, well, I thought we were supposed to break bread with the lost. Yeah, break bread with them. Share with them. But this word means to partake, to share with. Here's the difference. The Lord has called me to share my life with the world. To give. But the moment I begin believing the lie that I need something from them, that they have something that I, the moment I, I, I believe the lie that I need, like, friendship in them. Some of you have been hurt by the world because you keep trusting in the advice of the world. They're flaky. Like, it's okay. Stop being shocked when a non-believer is a non-believer. You're partaking with them. And what ends up happening is you just keep feeling alone. It is because, now, now the flip side, my, my brother Mike got to say, share with one another. Like, that's literally what Paul says. Live in community with one another. So partake in the kingdom, not with the world. Right? Like, do not be a partner. You can share with them, but listen, the moment I begin to depend on or take advice from or rely on, my heart will wander. It will. There's no company, Jesus says, between light and darkness. There's no company. There's no way a stream can be fresh water and salt water. They have to, there's no companionship, James says. And so this is beautiful because he continues. And he says, do not partner with them in their delights, Ephesus, in their fights, in their style. And I just like, it's not always partnering with them physically. In fact, as I was like stressed out about this and like God God uh, convicted my heart. He said, Greg, even though you may not partner physically with the world, 
you still partner with the empty words that they give or that they gave. In fact, you still partner with the empty words of how they define success or how they define this. You still partner with the empty word that they spoke over you long ago when you got abused by them. Like you still, you still partner with the words that they either presently give or they gave once. What it looked like to be enough, you're still partnering with, some of you. What it, what it was to be pretty, you're still partnering with. Sure, you don't look like that anymore, but at the back of your mind, that weight scale really does matter to your value. And it's because you partner with the empty words of the world. And it just continues. Like, I, I just remember in my life that I, I thought, I must be this in order to that. You see, you could tell an empty word as an empty word when you achieve it and it is never sweet enough because you got to go back to more. And so to call some out to that the Ephesus, the Ephesians were believing, there's an empty word that speaks that sex outside of marriage is normal and expected. There's an empty word that speaks that sexual fulfillment is a marker of your value. It, it, there's a, an empty word that speaks, and I was just speaking to Brian about it uh, a couple days ago. There's an empty word that speaks to the single people that singleness is a season of lacking. That is an empty word. That singleness is just a season of waiting. That's a lie. It is. Singleness is not a season of lacking, of waiting, or of not yet. So that's an empty word from our culture that gets Artemis in your ear. You just need this. You just need, do you feel the longing? Do you feel the aching? Do you see what you're missing? And we got to stand in the confidence that I have my Savior, and my Savior is all I have. He's, ha- he's what I have. The husbands and wives, there's an empty word. Hmm. That still tells you your value is determined by what they give you. That's an empty word that speaks of the sexual immorality of your past. Now, it's okay. The Lord's wanting to redeem it, but there's an empty word that says, if I don't, if we don't have sex this amount of times, if she doesn't look at me that way, if he doesn't speak to me this way, then I'm not enough. That is an empty word fueled by sexual morality that you can confidently overcome by the blood of Jesus. Your, your marriage can be whole from these lies. But he says then the most beautiful thing in the text thus far. It says verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. One time you were darkness, but now you are light. Now, I just want to like, tell you what the text does not say. The text does not say the Greek word of location. It does not say you were in darkness. That would add another Greek word. Because then it would have said, then now you are in light. And you're like, well, what does that matter, Greg? Because it's not a location change. It is literally a whole mode, a whole person, a, a literal shift from darkness to light. You were darkness. Not you were in it, and now you're just the same person but brought into life. No, you were darkness. Now this word is, I don't, I don't use these words often, but this word uh, darkness means lack of light. It literally is translated as abode of sin. Whew. Abode of demons. Abode, home of. 
Quite literally, my story is I was a house of sin. I was not a person in sin. I was a house of sin. And now I am light. Not just a person in light. I am light. Do you want to know what the cool thing about the word light means? It literally means that which is not dark. (laughs) That's all. A torch. That which isn't dark. Which literally means you were that way and now you are light. There's no location change. It's just a whole self changed. And it's beautiful because now the fruit of light is found all that is in good. All that is in the things that are right. All that are in the things that are true. And so this is the men and the women in the, in the room. You got to make a stand. I was darkness. I am light. And so now in my home, are you ready? Like in my home will be the things that are true are good. What I will mention is truth. What I will entertain in my thought are justice. It is, it is right. It is good. Empty words will not drive my concerns anymore. Empty words will not flee my, or fuel my fears anymore. No, what is good, what is right, what is holy, what does Paul say, what is noble, what is all those things, that's what I will dwell on. I am light. I'm light. And it's beautiful because then he says in verse 10, and now try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And this isn't one of those things that it's like you can't achieve it. No, you are in light. You have been given the mind of Christ, Paul says. So it is a bold lie to say that you can't trust your mind anymore. No, you have Christ in you. So trust him. You can now discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And then he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness because you're not there anymore. Instead, expose them. Now, I just want to speak this. Um, Some of you have been gifted to expose darkness. Yet our world paints it in such a nasty way. Uh, When I say expose darkness, what that means is that you refute the dark deeds. You refute the darkness. Now, what this doesn't do, this does not give you the ability to in public say, hey, sinner, or like, hey, I just want to let you know that you're in this sin. Like, that doesn't mean you call someone out in their sin. All right, we've all, okay, maybe not you've done it, but I've done that before, and it just doesn't work. Do you know what it does do? It actually puts you in alignment to the voice of the accuser who's already shaming them, and so now you're actually doing the unfruitful work of darkness too, so let's not do that, Okay. What it does mean is the Lord has uniquely put you and placed you in a place with people around you, and you are called to refute darkness. Now, does that mean you call out the person? No, you'd call out the works of darkness, meaning I will not let the enemy lie to you anymore. You are a child of the Most High. You are living in this, this, this belief system that, that is keeping you down. This is not, has no place in your home You are wonderfully made. And so you refute the deeds of the darkness and you lift up the child of God. Does this make sense? Cool. That was just a little little aside. But then he continues. You expose them. And then this is honestly my favorite verse. I get a little giddy. He says, verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. 
my translation that I've memorized is, if, when everything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And then it says, everything that is visible is light. And you're like, I don't, cool, why, the, why is that so cool? Um, my story is this. My story is this. Uh, let me tell you why this is powerful. I've never shared um, this part of my story, my testimony, from on stage before. So bear with me. This might also be not just the first time I do it, but the last time. We'll see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> it'll be good. Um, but I've shared it in one-on-one. I've shared it in, in my small group. Uh, but I believe as I was going into this text, the Lord was like, you must shine my light in this. So I will let you know that a good portion of my childhood, for about eight years, early childhood, all the way to middle high school, I was caught up in same-sex attraction and interactions with friend after friend after friend after friend. Part of my story is hundreds of unforeseen and hidden sexual sins with guys my age. And I grew up in the church, but I lived in a time where not only was that not spoken of, but that got you a ticket straight to hell. Right, And so I was plagued with between these lies and desires and this shame and, this, and, and these desires and this who am I and these desires. And it lasted a good portion of my childhood. It did. Me fighting, I just want freedom in this that no freedom had. I just want hope in this but no hope had. And I was aching and reckless And one time, I decided, I'm going to share this with someone. I was in ninth grade, and I shared it with someone. Uh, And, well, sorry, 10th grade, I shared it with someone. And what precursed this is when I was in ninth grade, I sat at a, at a, um, a Disciple Now, which is like this weekend thing. And the speaker of it, Uh, talked about like confessing your sins, getting over it. And this was the first time that my friends were not a part of this event either. It was the first time that I was alone. It just happened physically. They start de- determining the mental, right? And so uh, if, if you like, it's not just a, a seeing someone now. It's seeing a someone through my sin, which means now I'm analyzing the someone and possibly even traveling down the sexual immorality without even meaning to. Anyone else, right? And so now, year ninth grade, I'm having to realize, how do I retrain my brain on my own? How, how, what is happening? What is going on? Tenth grade, and I was invited to this thing, um, and this other event, and the, the pastor talked about how uh, we, it was this idea of, of, of holding close things. Uh, it was, um, what is it called when you, when you hoard? That was it, hoard. When you hoard things. And uh, I, this woman, it was in hoarders, and this woman had like all these vegetables that were rotting, and the people were like, okay, you need to get rid of all of this crap. And she's like, Like, okay, I want to get rid of all of it. 
but can I keep the like pumpkin seeds? And they're like, but why? And it's not the rotten thing anymore, but can I keep the pumpkin seeds? And I just remember the Lord spoke, Greg, you're not doing that thing, but there are pumpkin seeds of shame that have rooted deep in you that you will never be enough because of it. And I don't need you to just like confess the thing. I need you to confess the deep. I need you to confess the deep that you feel alone, that you feel not enough, that you you have these lies that pervade that you don't think you're uh, literally uh, man enough. And because what happened, if you, you know, try to prove yourself, all right, I'll go find myself a girlfriend, see how far we can go, right? Because that's the natural thing. And the Lord began a journey because what began happening, I confessed and I told a friend that evening. The next day, he comes to my house with a buttload of scripture that he wrote down for me. And he said, we will walk through this. And I had a notebook of his writing, a verse after verse that I began memorizing. Ephesians 6, where I'm going to teach over it. The message version, I must be prepared. I am up against far more than I can handle on my own. I will take all the help that I can get, every weapon that God has issued, so that when it is all over but the shouting, I'll still be on my feet. And so guess what, little Greg, little Greg, guess what Greg spoke over and over and over in a locker room because I was a football player, at a, at a friend's house because they're swimming, at, at this, at a TV show where the guy and girl are kissing, I must be prepared. I am up against far more than I can handle on my own. I will take all the help that I can get, every weapon that God has issued so that when it's all over but the shouting, I'll still be standing. And I watched as the Lord shifted something in me. And this is why our website is worded the way it is. If you want to, I watched. The Lord didn't say, I need you to exchange homosexuality with heterosexuality. I need you to exchange homosexuality with holiness. I need you to be holy as I am holy. That is the point. That is the place. I want you to know my son. I want you to know my ways. And so I began this journey of retraining my mind. And some of you are like, how can he share that? Won't he be afraid that someone will use it against him. No. Do you know why? When anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. And anything that is visible is light. Guess what? Satan can't touch my past of homosexuality because it is now light in him who's redeemed it. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? Are you making sense of this? So what this means is the very reason the enemy is still speaking into it in your life is because the action may be visible, but the lies that fuel it are not. It's not visible. It's not light. But I could say, like, I've, I remember the most transforming part of my journey because what then happens, and it, it comes in shades, This is what, 15 years of me retraining my brain and my lies, because it was that, but then it's uh, determining my value, then it's determining my my purity. I remember getting married and this woman walking down to me in a white dress, and the enemy spoke. I remember the first time real, real oppression 
of a lie. And then you spoke, she is pure and you are not. I'm now five years away from that. Like, but on my wedding day, I heard, she is gorgeous. She is beautiful. She is pure. You are not. And so I began this journey, okay, I'm going to uncover shame because more than homosexuality, more than your pornography addiction, more than your past of abuse, what now haunts you is shame. Shame is the deep abiding disbelief that you are your sin. It's because you once were. I was darkness, but the truth, I am light. And so I remember the transforming day when I could confidently uh, answer this question. You know, we always think, if I could just get a time machine and go back in time, I would change everything. I remember this day when I could confidently say, if I could get a time machine and go back in time, I would just hug myself. Right? I would just, I would literally do everything that Bobby John, my mentor in high school, did for me. Because none of that is broken anymore. You see, one thing you need to know about this was and is, is it's not just when Paul says, that was my old self and this is my new self. It's not like the old self uh, is, is way back there with all my sins. No, the old self is dead and gone. The new self, what it means to be light, is the grace of God travels backward and forward. The grace of God redeems the Greg who is knit in the mother's womb and brings me into heaven as a whole man. So what this means then is quite literally, like, none of that can determine any of my character in Christ. Because I am made new. I am made new. And all that is visible is light. And so, honestly, why do we partner with the empty words and still engage in the immoral? Many of the times you've brought about, you've brought up, you've exposed, you've confessed, but there are pumpkin seeds that have rooted you down into bitterness. In fact, some of you still pick up your nose to the people who are living in that sin, which now points to the fact that you still hold a root of sexual morality or a pain. Some of you think, well, I, this was me. I remember the journey of like getting now frustrated with people who have these issues, these, these problems. And the Lord's like, you're still looking at them the way you hated yourself. This is a root of bitterness that must be plunged. It is another way that sexual morality has taken your character, Greg. Get it out. And so over and over, why do we keep partnering with the empty words? Because there are things that still need to be exposed, that need to be brought into the light of God's truth. And so for 15 years, the lie, I'm lovable, that needs to be exposed. The lie, I'm ashamed, I am, I am nothing, I'm not good enough to be with my wife, she's too pure for me, that's done with. Like, I can't do this because of this, that's over. And healing after healing after healing, we discover something. Pornography in people, the abuse of your childhood, the things of your life, the sexual morality that began your relationship and now you're trying to move away from it, they still remain in your life not because of the sins of doing them, but because deep down you still believe you're stained by it. Deep down you still hold character flaws. It's just how you are because of it. 
And that lie, that empty word, remains unexposed. And so that's why you feel like it's still darkness. When the Lord's like, no, my grace makes it light. Because I know the passage that says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So then he says this, therefore, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise or wise, but make the most use of your time. Now, I love this phrase, make the most use. Uh, That word is a Greek idiom, and no English translation did it well. Like, it's sad. Like, they don't. They don't. The word literally means to redeem time. Like, if you want to put that, it means to redeem time. Now, I will walk as wi- in wisdom and not as unwise, because now I have the ability to redeem time. Now, I'll let you know what that looks like. Uh, I had to make the hard decision um, to share my testimony, which now makes, if you're a parent in the room, you're in here a lot longer than you normally are, right? Uh, this sermon is now like 30 minutes long. No, it's not. 30 minutes longer than it should have been, right? But we had to make a hard decision in our life. The days are evil, and by God, I have the ability to redeem time, which means as an imitator of the Lord of hosts, I now get to step into real time, and it can be shaped by what I speak, what I do, how I love, how I lead. I can redeem time, so be wise, don't be foolish. And then he says, don't get drunk on wine. And you're like, what? No, I love Paul. This is the weirdest part of this sentence. Like, why does he go from all of this? And then he says, hey, by the way, don't get drunk on wine. Like, I genuinely, if you were to map it in a beautiful way, I would have put this with all the other things when he says, don't do, don't do, don't do. Now it's just this random aside. But I actually think he knows us pretty well. In fact, let me just... Anyone have the hard conversation and plan and you're like, if I could just get a drink before I have to deal with that hard conversation. Anyone? The world says, all right, if you're going to deal with this, why not just have something that'll take the edge off of it? I think Paul knows something. If these people are actually going to deal with their um, immoralities, if people are actually going to take some lies from their past and bring it to the forefront, the enemy will say, let's just like, let's just fill your mind with something else to take the ease off. To, so you don't, you don't have to think about those memories as heavy as they are. You don't have to deal with it as heavy. But Paul's like, do not drink wine. Don't get drunk. For it is debauchery. Really cool thing of this? The word debauchery means wastefulness. In fact, God's like, wine is good. You're drinking it way too much. You get drunk. That's wasteful. Save the fruit for tomorrow. All right, drink that bit now. Don't get drunk because that's wasteful. It's debauchery. It's reckless. I have it prepared for you in a time it's prepared. So some of you decide not to drink at all. Good, don't. Others of you, you take it day by day. Okay, don't get drunk. Why? Because I need you to be filled on the spirit. And I'm gonna end with this. The word filled means to be completed. It means to be completed by the Spirit. And so, band, you guys can come on up. Because one thing I've learned is Artemis, alcohol, food, sex, pleasures, 
your work, money, all of those things promise to fill what is lacking. They do. In fact, when we focus on them, we don't have to feel the feels that we feel without them. And it's this lie, if I keep moving, some of you, some of you men, honestly, the best thing you can do for your family is stop working. Because you move so much that the lies can't be heard so that you can transition them with truth. And so you keep living in this unfruitful, empty-worded life, making names, keeping hold of them, thinking that you have to be the provider, and, and, and you're just doing this. But we all know when we stop. If we wait for a little bit, the things we are not okay with in our life start rising. There are stories from your past that you think they're just in my past and they stay there. But that's literally what is prohibiting you from moving forward because it's not exposed, it's not made visible, and therefore it's not light yet. Well, Greg, how can I be in light but part of me isn't? Welcome to sanctification. Welcome to being made in his image, imitating God. And so I'm just gonna give you an opportunity today to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of you, you have a charismatic background and you're like, woo-wee, what is this gonna mean? Others of you, you have the opposite and you're like, oh, what's this gonna mean? But I just invite all of you, if you're a believer in the room or you're seeking the Lord of hosts, I, encourage, I invite you to close your eyes and pull your hands up. Thanks for listening to the Glory Podcast. For more information about this message or Glory Church, please visit glorychurchkc.com.